Thank you for listening to Shotgun Logic. This is Shane Douglas Keen. I'm joined by Beverly Lee and Stephanie Ellis. And tonight we're having a conversation with Nicole Eisner, author of Beguiled by Night. Stick around. Nicole is a wonderful writer and awesome person and a great conversationalist. You're going to want to hear this one. Okay. uh, Thank you for joining us, Nicole. How are you doing today? I'm great. How are you doing? Good, good. Um, I was going to... Good to have you. I was going to ask you before we started recording, but I hit the record button. Um, pronounce your last name for me. Eisener. Eisener. Oh, I was right. Almost. Almost, yes. <laughs> Closer than I was. <laughs> it's a tough one. So that way, when I do the intro, at least I'll say your name right, and everybody will think I nailed it until they hear this. <laughs> <laughs> um, so tell us a little bit about yourself so our listeners uh, can learn a little bit more about you. Um, killer, killer tattoo, by the way. Oh, thank you. <laughs> well, um, I'm the author of a historical vampire novel called Beguiled by Night, a vampire tale. And um, it's the story of an ancient French vampire who begins to find his time unwinding and his adventures after that. Um, It's a a little bit of a different take on a vampire tale, I think. But uh, vampires are definitely my wheelhouse. I... I'm obsessed with vampires. I can say that. Um, (laughs) um, The reason for writing the book, I think, came out of um, I I love Anne Rice's vampire stories, especially with Lestat's background being French, because that's also something I'm very interested in. I'm a bit of an amateur historian, especially with French history. But I wanted to take it to a different time period, which was a 17th century. So that's. That's kind of how the book was born. Cool. Um, it's, uh, yeah, uh, so um, vampires, has that been a long time, a long time uh, obsession of yours? It's. I think it's an obsession. I know it's an obsession of mine. I know for a fact it is of Beverly's. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, yes. I mean, I. I really can't remember a time in my life where, I wasn't attracted to the vampire story. I just, I think it's an interesting metaphor for so many things. I mean, it can be applicable to really any person who feels a bit of an outsider from society. I think they can relate to the vampire story. I just mentioned that to Bev the other day. I think that I was, what I found remarkable is how much, um, is it Bacalan? Uh How do you pronounce his name? Well, you know, if you want to get technical, it's Vocalin, but, okay. yeah. you know, <laughs> it's, it's another tough name. I mean, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Some of the French stuff, um, you know, is, is challenging, but, yeah. Um, incidentally, on my website, I have a little section of pronunciations for anyone who's interested. Um, they have some of the repetitive words in the book their pronunciations for those but you were saying about vocalin i don't remember (laughs) (laughs) 
Uh, not an uncommon experience. It has nothing to do with you. <laughs> I was going to ask, you said that you've been, you're interested in, in vampires and that whole thing. And in the book, there's a bit about the sort of the, the subculture of those who actually dress like vampires, behave, you know, have the teeth put in and that they sort of behave like that. Is that anywhere you've ever is that a place that you've ever gone to and you know you say you love vampires would you go that far at all yourself or have you just observed how people are no I don't I don't think that's something that I would participate in myself but I do think it's a fascinating subculture I mean um there's actually a subculture of people that truly believe they're vampires and take it as far as drinking blood and or be energy vampires and you know, um, as much as I love vampires, I can still admit that they're fiction. Yeah. They don't exist. But the reason for including that in the book was I wondered how a real vampire would respond to people like that. You know, how what would that experience be like for a real vampire? And that's sort of a theme that goes through the book is him uh, trying to relate to humanity because he does live among humans and so to me it was kind of a especially with with him being in modern times it was a natural progression for him to go and experience that and see how he responded to that but yeah not not it's not for me (laughs) he's very worried about his money and his financial status wasn't he when he went back he's always checking his bank account (laughs) yes well I mean it's like you have to wonder, like, there really isn't sort of an ideal job for a vampire. Like, what could they do? I mean, and, and being sort of an extraordinary creature, you know, you couldn't, like, work the night shift at a warehouse or something. It would be kind of odd. So I think he um, it's part of his sustainability as a creature existing for a very long time is making sure that he's financially secure without having to go out and you know, make a living, <laughs> especially because he wasn't born that way. He was born with wealth. So, yeah, I, 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 love, I, love, I love the way that you blend the like the, the gothic historical horror with the time slip. How difficult was that to write? Oh gosh, the time, the timeline was very difficult. I, I ended up writing three different timelines, and I had to continuously refer to them while I was writing the book to make sure I wasn't slipping up in mm-hmm. some way. And, um, and then as the story progressed, um, there were instances where it threw the timeline off completely. And so I'd have to go and change it. And uh, that it was very challenging, especially given that there are some flashbacks yeah. in the book and making sure those were consistent with the future. Um, or the future past, as he calls it. Um, so that was, it was a bit of a, a mind boggle at times, like keeping up with that. You you didn't make it easy for yourself, did you? <laughs> no, no. <laughs> I couldn't just write a story. No, let's make it triple complicated for yourself. <laughs> but I, I think that's that's one one take of why it did work is because it, it's such a unique spin on the whole vampire sort of genre. I don't think I've ever read a vampire tale with the time slip as it was going backwards. 
Yes, and that's kind of where the genesis of the story began. Um, my my husband and I had watched a vampire film, and unfortunately, I can't remember which one it was that triggered this, but I just off the cuff said, I wonder what it would be like if a vampire went back in time. And he he was like, oh, I want to hear that story. I want to see that. And I was like, okay, let's do it, you know, and so that's, it was really that simple how the story came about, but then sitting about and figuring out how to make that happen and, um, and have plot devices that moved the story forward, that was definitely the hard part, um, and then the timelines, oh, yeah, it was tough. <laughs> I was thinking about what Steph said about, um, um, sorry, um, the the uh, financial thing. Um, just to interject real quick before I forget. Um, imagine when you think about the incredible inflation between now and 1959, and then think about suddenly finding yourself back there with the same damn money you have. Only, <laughs> only it's deflated to 1959 values, you know, and suddenly that's not a lot of money at all. <laughs> right when you're accustomed to one numerical figure in your account <laughs> yeah exactly <Draft> different <laughs> yeah so yeah i think more more uh more stressful than inflation would be deflation <laughs> so. oh, definitely and and i think that's why he was so attached to it, having physical items of value like jewels and gold and things that would always have a value versus money you know, yeah. and see, because it changes so much, you know, especially in Europe. I mean, different governments and different periods, the currency would mean nothing. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, but, you know, that happened to him at one point. Didn't it? He went back and he had some notes that were the wrong. They were the wrong year, so he couldn't use them. Right. Yeah. But he still left them as payment. <laughs> <laughs> just created another mystery <laughs> monopoly money you should have sent it back with monopoly money <laughs> right <laughs> exactly yeah. so, so anything historical obviously has got to be meticulously researched which is one reason why I don't particularly write historical because I'm too lazy um, how long did it take you from beginning to get into a draft where you thought this is it um I would say because I wasn't writing full time because I also have a full time job, so it was on the side. But from the very beginning until the time that I sent it to beta readers was about two years. Mm. So and of course, I wasn't writing full time at all. Yeah. Um, but a lot of the history, um, fortunately, was um history that was already in my conscience. So, you know, um, I did some fact checking here and there, but um, in terms of the actual history that's included, that was, I had already sort of absorbed that. So it wasn't a huge block of time to add that research in. Yeah, but you, but you always have to be careful, don't you, with anything historical, because there's always going to be that one reader that goes, 
Ah, but that didn't happen in that year. It was the year before. Oh, yes. And that's me usually. So <laughs> I, I had to check myself a lot. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I'm a stickler for facts. I, you know, like the series Versailles, for example, I love that series, but it's it's completely an eye candy series for me because I just cannot overlook the fact that there are so many historic inaccuracies in that show. I just, I, I get, I've just finished watching that. Very, very good. It's very good. Yeah, I, you know, sometimes you have to throw those conceptions out and just be entertained. Yes, you know? absolutely. And it's, very entertaining. Yeah, and it's hard to turn that off if you're passionate about something, you know, like historical accuracy. <laughs> oh, and, and eye candy is a really good description of that one. Yes, yeah. absolutely. It is just visually gorgeous and sexy and dark and I don't know I just really love that thing I if you had well Beverly told me I would and I thought yeah no way I'm gonna like that thing that's just so out of my wheelhouse um and I watched the first one and I had to force myself two hours later to stop and go do something productive yeah, <laughs> yeah it's it's definitely addictive <laughs> Yeah. So, um, favorite vampire? Um, well, besides my own, obviously, because I, I love him yes. so much. Um, I really, truly, if, if, if I have to say it, my favorite vampire is Bela Lugosi's Dracula. And it's very different from the novel Dracula. Very, very different. But I just, he was the first vampire that I truly fell in love with. Yeah. yeah. And so he's he's always going to be my favorite, always. Um, but in terms of other fictional vampires, I, I do love Lestat. I think he's a very complicated character. And I really love the way she wrote him um there were there was a point in time where i felt like she kind of needed to stop writing about lestat because the stories got a little crazy and not necessarily yeah. in a good way and you know i'm sure she is very attached to lestat but sometimes you have to let them go and yeah. you know characters can only go so far um but but i i do love lestat I yeah, I agree, agree with that one. He was the first sort of literary vampire that I kind of clicked with because I could understand why he did what he was doing. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, yeah I, I understand that. What about you, Steph? I stick to the Dracula itself, I haven't really read widely in terms of vampires. They are not a trope that, as I say, I, I read a lot of. And I think I, when we were talking at the start, I think Twilight put me off. I had to read it from a job. <laughs> um, I think it put a lot of us off. Purposes for the student, because I was a librarian. Um, and I prefer old school where it's grim. It's with this sort of modern vampires, they've become a bit too glittery, I think. So if, if they're more old school, then I prefer those 
to the ones that are around today, but I don't tend to go too much into vampire fiction. Yours is the first that I've read for a while, and I, I enjoyed that. It was the it's the actual time the t- going back in time and changing it. It was a different approach. And I think it's because other vampire novels tend to take the same approaches, but this one was slightly different and it went back and then started to move forward again. There was a point to it. And some vampire novels, they don't have that. They just go around either killing people all the time or, you know, it's just the teen version I've seen a lot of lately, which (laughs) which has coloured my thinking a little bit. But this, this I like, especially the historical aspects to it, because like you, I do like history. My degree is pretty much history based, but I wasn't quite a Sun King fan. I was the other side. I liked um, the Stuarts. And so it's always Charles II and Louis XIV at the same time and the way they behaved with each other. So it's that sort of time. But, uh, yeah, I, I love the history in that. It's really good. Well, that's interesting to to hear about the Stuarts as well, because um, prior to writing this book, I I adore Louis the Fourteenth. It's and just the era of Louis the Fourteenth. I adore in France specifically, but I've always been kind of an apologist for Louis the Fourteenth until <laughs> I wrote this book, which was really interesting to me. It made me dislike him because I really got into the crux of what would happen if someone was on the other side of the evil things that he was doing, like seizing people's properties and giving their titles away. And, you know, I realize this is an aristocracy thing and we shouldn't have too many feelings about, about the aristocracy, but, you know, he, he did do some really heinous things and um, those are kind of glossed over a little bit in a show like Versailles, although they did try to make him a little sinister, but that was a huge surprise for me in writing this book because it changed how I felt about someone I had admired historically prior to writing the book. Really interesting is that. Yeah. 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 It's always when you do a bit of research, you start to dig up the dirt, don't you? (laughs) And you wish you'd never started. Yes. Yes. Especially, you know, it's interesting when it leaves you with a completely different perspective than what you held before. And so that was a, that was an interesting experience for me personally. So, 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 was, so was Vaucon a character that has always been with you and you had to find a vehicle for him to sort of be in or did the setting and the story come first and you had to create a character to fit into that? That's a very interesting question, Beverly. I think that, I think that he was always in the back of my mind as this kind of ideal, but I didn't really think about writing him until, like I said, I had that inaugural idea about a vampire going back in time. And he just moved into the forefront of my mind. And it was I I told a friend of mine that there were times writing the book that I actually felt like I was his secretary, (laughs) you know, (laughs) like just writing things down. And it was kind of bizarre at times. I was like, this, where is this coming from? You know, but I think the fact that 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 it did flow that easily almost is representative of the fact that he had already been living rent free in my mind for a long time and has 
story just needed to be told. I just needed a a push. I had I had a feeling that 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 was that was the reason because I don't know sometimes when you're reading a book you can tell that the character has been fully fleshed for quite a long time as opposed to just being a creation that has just come into the writer's mind. He seemed very multifaceted right from the beginning. Right. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, and. Uh, there was there was another character. I think you and I may have discussed this briefly, Beverly, before. But there was a character in the book who started off as a one sentence message. I mean, mention. Yeah. And ended up becoming a main character, and that was Maeve. Like she yeah. was just this offhanded mention at the beginning of the book, and she is another one who just kind of tapped on the inside of my brain and said, "Hey." I need more time than you've given me here. Like I have more to say, you know, and um, she really pushed her way into the story in a way I did not anticipate. I just did that with a character the other night or she did it to me. I, I pulled her to death two nights ago. And then the other night she came back to life and became a main character. So <laughs> it's, it's amazing when that happens. And I think, you know, as an author, like, sometimes you might be tempted to tamp that down like no I'm not I'm not ready for you or you you don't belong in this storyline yeah. but sometimes you have to listen to the characters and if they're being pushy there's probably a reason like they need to be fleshed out yeah you have to really trust that voice um mm -hmm. you that's one of the hardest things as a writer I think and I'll get you guys' take on it um, um John Langan said, uh, uh, you really, really, really have to trust your own idea. And really, when it comes down to it, it's kind of the same thing. That character speaking in your mind, you have to, it's a big leap of faith. And it's taken me years to make that leap because I don't trust it that much. And the character talking, it's like, well, yeah, I've been having, you know, little personal fantasy stories spinning in my head since I was five it doesn't mean it's a story for anybody else you know and you have to fight that uh, I think Josh Mallerman said protect your enthusiasm yes that is such beautiful advice because you know like when we're younger you don't have that inhibition about creativity whatsoever and then various things happen people come along and and tamp that down in you or tell you oh you shouldn't do that or you know that's that's not acceptable and it you begin to edit yourself so much that you end up editing the creativity right out of your life and so many people stop creating when they emerge from childhood and it's a shame i mean who knows what we're missing out on from people that got their voices silenced at some point really really and i always feel like if you're one of those people who feels like well i i was going to be a writer or i was going to be an artist but um yeah i feel like you should no matter what your age is you should still consider embracing that i was 56 years old before i published my first poem because i'd never submitted one before then so um whenever whenever you get the fire um by all means stoke it you know <laughs> I think that's a beautiful thing about creativity. It really is never, ever, ever too late to start doing that. I mean, my goal 
for myself when I started the book, I had no idea if it was going to be published or if it would ever see the light of day or if I would ever be brave enough to show it to anyone. I really didn't know that. It was just something I had to do for myself because that story was so prevalent in my mind. I had to get it out of my mind. Mm-hmm. And as it began to really look like an actual novel, you know, the momentum started building for me and it became a goal for me. I was like, I've been writing my whole life and I stopped for many, many years, kind of because of what we were just discussing, you know, uh, that desire being tamped down or someone trying to step on my creativity and I, I gave it up. And so it became a goal for me to get the book published and out into the world before I turned 50, which I just did. So last year, you know, that happened and it was just such a huge sense of accomplishment. And, you know, even if the book is only read by a handful of people, um, it means something to me that it's out there and that I did it. You know, it's I saw a stat sometime that said fewer than 20% of people that start writing a book ever finish it. And it's a daunting task. You know, it's a, it's a big undertaking and anyone that writes a novel should be celebrated because it's a, it's a lot of work. It it, it is such a huge thing because you, you, you take this, this, this creature that you've created and you've lavished all this love and attention and time on it. And then you put it out in the whole world for people to trample on. I mean, <laughs> it, it's really the most vulnerable you can make yourself. I mean, yes. you just, you're cutting yourself open and inviting the world to come in and feast upon you, basically. <laughs> to put it in a horror metaphor. <laughs> That's actually a really, really astute way of putting it. <laughs> <laughs> Here you go, devour me. Yes, <laughs> pretty much. <laughs> when you were talking just now about um, sort of effectively doing your own thing and reacting against constraints that are put on you, it sounds very much like Maeve in the book. Do you think that a lot of her, you, is in her and the way she reacted against what people expected of her to do. And she said, no, I'm going to do this. And she up sticks and moved away and did what she wanted. That's that's a very interesting question. And, um, you know, I, I wondered when people read the book and they saw that I have red hair, they would oh, automatically no. assume <laughs> that, that I was projecting myself into Maeve when actually I am much more like, vocal am like he's actually the one I projected myself into like I um I feel he he is headstrong in his in his own way as well like in in that he does what he what he would like to do but he does it in a more underground sort of way and I feel like that's more accurate to me um I I am definitely a headstrong person that's there's no doubt there <laughs> but um yeah, it's definitely uh, he's he's more more of myself is in him than in her, I think, which might surprise some people. <laughs> but yeah. So. I don't know, though, really, I think it's kind of. Uh, 
a lot of times I can tell who an author projected themselves into, and I can't say I knew that about um, Vauquelin or Vauquelon. <laughs> you did fine. You did fine. Um, and uh, I distracted myself there. No, I don't remember what I was talking about. About people projecting themselves. Oh, right, right. It's always it's a lot of times I can tell who it was that was that they that they actually loved the most just by how much how much I feel about the character. A lot of times you can see, um, and especially if you know an author, you can read their books and see, okay, this one here is really, really got a lot of him or her in it, you know? Um, but it's the, what I feel like is like, it's the attention, the love that you show those characters without even really being super, super conscious about it, you know? And yes, yes. Um, the depth that you give them, it's, you start to see with some authors, um, who their who their true darlings were when they were writing those things, and I have no idea what my point was there other than just to say that. <laughs> it, it's an interesting experiment. That, yeah, I was just wondering how that reflects on us then, because some of the characters that I've written in my folk horror, I really love them, and they are the villains of the piece, and that's not me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not I'm not the one who's going to go around killing people or manipulating people or anything like that. Yeah, I really, really enjoy writing them so much. I don't want to kill them off. And if it looks as I'm going to kill them off, I sort of pull back. So it's, <laughs> so it's, it's not really me there if we read any of those. <laughs> but do you yeah. feel, Stephanie, that maybe you like you can exercise some of your own like personal demons through those characters? at all I mean even though it's not something that you would do yeah I think I think I do it because it's what people don't expect of me I think right. it's because I, I've always been the sort of but I, I'm an ex-librarian uh, teaching assistant in the school I'm sort of fairly quiet and when people start to ask me what I do and it's all oh, I write horror I listen to death metal and they look at you and they just don't put it together and then that's sort of into the characters because it's just not expected and I like to do what's not expected to a certain extent something yeah. that's not to embarrass me too much did I say so <laughs> nothing in real life but in, on paper yeah sure. <laughs> you can get away from all sorts <laughs> well I love that I love keeping people guessing I mean it's it's one thing to be um a parody of yourself in a way yeah. or <laughs> you know to me, the most interesting people I've known in my life have been different than than their face value or what you expected when you met them. I love that. I mean, I think not everyone wants to wear their heart on their sleeve or their intentions on their sleeve, you know, and I love that. I think it's interesting. It teaches people not to make assumptions on appearances as well. Definitely. And that's one thing I always taught the kids that I worked with when they looked at me. And I said, there you go, because they keep thinking they have to be a certain way. And you don't. You can just be yourself and not appear. You know, you don't have to wear the uniform that everyone else wears. Yes, it's OK to have a private self, you know, and, and I think that's getting harder and harder to do. And And I do feel a little sad for younger people because there's so much emphasis on 
public appearance, especially with social media and what you're projecting yourself to be, that it's becoming harder and harder to be an authentic person yeah. these days, you know? But, um, yeah, unless you're at an age where you just don't have any fucks to give anymore. and then <laughs> Which I have definitely achieved that. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm still probably older than all of you. <laughs> nope, I doubt that. <laughs> I mean, there's so much emphasis now on conforming, even though people like to be original. I don't know. I just think that sometimes the kids feel like they have to be like everybody else or like some certain celebrity that's the flavor of the month. And it must be really difficult because they have a lot of pressure. Yes, definitely. And as well as gatekeeping, you know, um, which is a controversial topic right now. But, um, you know, I... I really dislike that. And anyone who um, is involved in any sort of subculture and even like horror as a literary genre, you know, that topic comes up frequently. And I just I keep saying as as often as I can that no one has the right to say what horror is or what's scary mm. or, you know, because that's such a subjective term. I mean, it's it really depends on the individual, you know, and horror, it's a bit problematic as a genre because it implies, you know, jump scares and slasher and gore. And um, it's so more uh, so much more multifaceted than that. I mean, it, yeah. um, it's it's almost too broad of a term. But but where do we go from here? Like, how do we. How do we solve that problem? It's it's tough. I mean, it's it's getting more complicated, I think, as time goes on, rather than less complicated. Because quiet horror, it takes a lot more for people to think about when they're reading. Yes. They have to apply their brains a bit more to, to get into it. Whereas if you've got the things with the jump scares, it's easier. It's almost passive in a way because it's all happening in front of you you're not having to read between the lines too much and I think because everyone's so time poor these days and they're so tired a lot of the time they it's if they talk about horror and they pick up a horror book they expect that because that's the easiest thing for them to actually deal with where if you've got the quieter horror or those that rely more on inferences and subtleties it's it's harder it is definitely. I thrive on that kind of a read, though. Even if it's a frantic, bloody, brutal read, um, it has to have some of those aspects of quiet horror. It has to make me think about things. Um, I have to. I have to work just a little bit at it. Otherwise, it's just not really. Um, it's just not what I'm paying for. No. Um, I use movies. I use movies for mindless escape. Um, I used reading for entertaining, but it's I couldn't. I could never call it mindless. Um, my my brain works too much while I'm reading. You know. <laughs> yes. I think that automatically happens when you're a writer who's reading. It's mm-hmm. it's challenging. <laughs> it really is. Um, and it and it can make it's interesting too if it's an ingrained habit it can make it difficult 
for school age children for um uh because i was i went into english classes and things at a very young age knowing as much as most of the english teachers that were teaching me things they were teaching me you know <laughs> but it was because i've always been a I don't know what you'd call it, really, a kind of a savant when it comes to words. I taught myself to read with my sister's flashcards and um, British crime novels for the most part, you know. Yeah. Um, and it's just uh, people have their passions, you know. Mine has always been some form of a word. Mm-hmm. Same here. But that's what I think is great about the community, too, is ha- having somebody weird like that talk to <laughs> it's like i spent a lot of time in it in a bubble you know and then i finally i think it was 2014 i really started becoming a member of the horror community online um which i resisted for decades being online um but uh it just it's good to have that we have this whole group of people around us who actually understand what the hell we're talking about when we say crazy shit like well last night my character was telling me you know, <laughs> and you all, oh, yeah, I love it when that happens. <laughs> you know? Oh, it's and so true. Going, what the hell are you talking about? Are you on acid or what? <laughs> oh, yeah. You, you try you try saying that to us, that's of anybody that doesn't write, and they kind of they kind of glaze over or give you that really odd look and change yeah. the subject. Yeah, like the, the guys in the white jackets are coming for you soon. Yes. <laughs> The other thing yeah. is the, the searches that we do, the Google searches, you know, when you're trying to find something, the sorts of things that you put in the search box will probably get you locked away. Oh, I know. <laughs> OK, that's a fun question. Stephanie, what's the weirdest thing you've ever Googled? Uh, mine was uh, actually... Or most was, disturbing, you choose. <laughs> it, was, it was how much water can you extract from a human? Um, wow. For a story where you know the the water was the shortage and people were dying but you could use the human body to extract so I was looking up how much water you could you extract and there's apparently more water in men than women so the man was the first to go I'm afraid and I was looking up machines that you could use to sort of dry out the bodies and there was some sort of machine agricultural machinery over in America that I found it's really strange I can't remember all of it now, but it's you should just Google desiccating a human body. Or <laughs> wow. What about you, Beverly? Oh, I, I feel like I'm I'm continually googling st- stages of human corpses and decaying, and you know well, what, what, you looked at body farms. Yeah, well, what oh. what what comes first? Because I, I'm such a stickler for for detail that when I'm describing you know some character or some something that's been decaying, I, I want to know what it looks like and what it smells like, and even if it's just for a, a very small amount of the story, I have to have that right. So yeah, I'm I'd be locked up completely for my Google history. Have you looked at YouTube? I've got some body farms on. No, there. no, don't get me going down the YouTube thing. <laughs> I think probably mine was um, how quickly can you drain a human body of blood? <laughs> because I was like, that one, that one's probably going to get me on some sort of list. Yes. You know? <laughs> um, but I needed to know because I, I wanted my 
draining scene to be accurate you know like could he completely drain a body in five minutes turns out yes he could i was about to ask is that true (laughs) i shall add that to my list of things i need to know yeah i mean i don't know i've learned so many odd things about blood like just (laughs) we don't actually have that much blood in our bodies astonishingly but what system would they have to be to be drained that quickly then? So, you know, you hear about animals being hung upside down and then their throats cut and they're drained that way. If a vampire is draining a human, would the human, well, he's, yeah, ex-human, <laughs> would they be horizontal or vertical or did you have to do any research on that? Because that's a bit of bizarre. That's thought. interesting. I don't know. I, I don't think I actually went there. Um, I, you know, it's funny, like, after you write a book, you you kind of never stop writing it in your mind, even though it's out there. I mean, do you do you feel that way, yeah, Beverly and Stephanie and, and Shane? Like, it's like it's out there, it's published, but it's kind of still playing in the back of your mind, and that's oh, that's that's something that I don't think readers ever really think about. It's like when you finish a book, you're kind of like done with it, and you move on and you read another book and I don't know, at least that that's what happens to me. It's still back there and I'm thinking, oh, I should have done this. And in this scene, I could have done this and he could have done something this way. It just never stops. Um, but yeah, the the blood thing, I you know, that's an interesting thing you mentioned, Stephanie, because now, I, now you have me going, hmm, I could have done something with, you know, <laughs> this particular scene. And it, and it all depends on, on the sucking power of the vampire, of course, because yeah. obviously some could maybe suck more powerfully if they were master vampires than if they were just fledglings. That's very true. <laughs> and, you know, my vampire is kind of meticulous. It's pointed out a lot in the book, like he's really concerned about like not having any spillage or anything. So that probably makes it more challenging for him. And I'm always critical of that. And when I watch vampire movies, I'm like, oh, they're wasting so much blood. Look at that. Like, that's completely unacceptable. No <laughs> self-respecting vampire would leave that much blood laying around on the floor. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Beverly Beverly has one, though, that is quite a messy eater. <laughs> <laughs> And, but but it's like he's growing boy, so it makes perfect sense, you know. <laughs> no longer growing, I imagine, but a boy. Yeah. <laughs> um, I haven't. I've. I was. I was convinced for years I would uh, get arrested for any murder in my neighborhood that happened because I did research. <laughs> you know, does blood really smell like copper? No. Does do does gun smoke smoke smell like? cordite no you know <laughs> and you know um i've looked up field stripping weapons and different ways of killing people <laughs> you know it's just uh, the, the things we look up i've just been convinced that if there's ever a serial killer in this city again i'll be at the top of the list of people they're looking at you know? <laughs> well it's a, it's a great reason to go ahead and publish something because there's your alibi <laughs> exactly I, I, I don't want to give any spoilers, Nicole, but there's a, a certain scene in your book where acid is mentioned. Did you have to do a lot of research on on the acid thing? Well, I'll admit that that was um, that was more of a fantasy aspect, and it was it was actually inspired 
by a classic horror film, which is, um, oh my gosh, now the name is, is completely, it's a Vincent Price film. Um, oh gosh, why can I not think of the title? It's, it's where um, they have a party in a house and they invite 10 people and if they can survive <laughs> through midnight. Is this, I think I know what you mean, but I don't know the title. Someone can I, oh, I'm so embarrassed it's that I can't think of this. It's, it's actually one of my favorite classic horror films. Not Theatre of Blood, is it, with the critics? And they're all... No, no, it's yeah, it's like... Um, thing, isn't it? Anyone... Oh, this is so embarrassing. So they these people are invited to this haunted mansion and if they can survive the night they get ten thousand dollars each and there was a remake of it recently it's um isn't it the house on haunted hill is that it but it's yeah i think you're right yeah that's it that's it oh so embarrassing so (laughs) but there there is an acid pit in that film and that is directly what inspired that Uh. so um I don't know how quickly that would happen or how accurate that is. Um, but it seemed, it seemed a very effective way for a vampire to dispose of bodies, yeah. you know, um, and to cover up tracks. Because that's something else he's very concerned with is concealing evidence of his existence. So, yeah, that's... Um something else I've, I've certain researched a little bit of is how to how to completely make a body disappear <laughs> <laughs> yeah so you know and then you do stuff like that and you contemplate tossing great big garbage bags full of laundry or something in the back of your car so people see you at night <laughs> <laughs> makes me think of dexter yeah exactly. taking them out on the boat <laughs> That was that that was great shows with Dexter. I really like that. They're bringing it back, aren't they? I know. Yeah, I'm interested to see how that turns out. It was a really good show. I mean, it it had some ebbs and flows. Yeah, it definitely had ebbs and flows. But yeah, yeah, and the ending was a bit. But yeah. Yeah. Good books at first too. The first few books I read were really super good in that series. Um, But uh, they. It's like all authors that write the same character over and over and over and over and over again. If you get up to 15 or 20 books, it gets old. Yeah. Right. Like but, yeah, the, <laughs> go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. I, 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 I did have one question written down, but I actually think I, I, I know your answer, Nicole. It's, uh, has any single writer inspired your creative style? Are you going to say on rise? I I don't know. I mean, I like in some of the reviews that I've gotten, um, a couple of people have compared me to Anne Rice, but I don't like that was never intentional. And honestly, I think I've read like two or three of her books ever. And you just recommended a recent one, or, or one to me recently, Beverly, which I have to pick up, which is Cry to Heaven. Oh, Cry to Heaven, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah I've never read before. You, you but, would love that one. Yeah, but I haven't read that many of her books, which may surprise people. But but truthfully, I mean, I don't read that many vampire novels. 
I read more after I wrote the book than I did before, which is interesting. But it's been more of a cinematic thing for me. So that's that's a really tough question because I I really read a lot of older fiction, um, more like truly historical fiction than that it was written maybe a hundred or more years ago more than I read contemporary fiction. So I can't really pinpoint a single author, but more that older fiction maybe influenced my voice than than any one single writer. So yeah, that's a that's a tough one. But yeah, some some somebody chime in with an easy question. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, um. I was listening to your playlist that you had a playlist to go with the book. Oh, and interesting. Yeah, and I, I hadn't discovered it until just before we came on. So I was listening to a few um, tracks on there. And I, I like the Philip Glass stuff. I'm certain I've heard some of that before. But I have a question because you've got some of the sort of German um, techno type stuff, the electric stuff, electronic stuff on there. There's no blue tangle. I don't know whether you've listened to any of them before. They're a German band. They're gothic, but they, it's its quite a bit cheesy in the way, but they do songs called like Vampire and Soul Taker and all that sort of thing. They're a really good band that would fit in with this um, vibe of this book, I think. So no, I haven't heard of them. To your list, Blue Tangle. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think it's, it's so interesting to me, like, um, I guess if there were a community reference to me, like I could probably consider myself to be an elder goth, but mm -hmm. going to gatekeeping, it's so intense with music. And a lot of the music that's on there on that playlist, people probably would not consider goth, but to me, that's, it's so subjective. And, um, it's really bizarre how much of a hot topic that is in the goth world, which is so weird. Um, I just, music is so subjective, but I just, I tried to make a, with that playlist, a, a cross section of the periods yep. of time that exist yep. in the book, you know, so it's a very odd playlist, and I imagine it appeals to very specific tastes, like <laughs> mine, because it's like Baroque music and goth music and techno and just bizarro tracks. I mean, it's it's a weird playlist. So if people like it, you know, great. Like, we should be best friends, probably. <laughs> it's, it's always interesting, isn't it, to find out what actually writers listen to to inspire them to create the world and sometimes it it's music that is completely the opposite to, to what they're writing that's so true i mean i i feel like uh music do do either of you listen to music while you write i don't i i, I can't listen to anything i can listen to instrumental music but i can't listen to anything with lyric because it just puts me off what about you stephanie i i listen a lot um Sometimes I know exactly what I want to listen to because it's got a certain mood to it. Other times I need music, but the words can put you off. 
So I listen to a lot of, um, as I said, uh, so although it's Danish or Norwegian or Swedish or, or whatever, but Nord Nordic music, Finnish metal. Um, mm -hmm. If they're singing in their own language, you get the vibe, but you don't get the distraction yeah. of words, and that is always very good. So I do. That's I true. like that. Yeah. Yeah, I would agree. Like uh, sometimes uh, lyrics they bleed into your mind too much, you know, and mm -hmm. it it can really like still your writing. Um, but I also kind of like a mood and if if I'm going into a certain groove with writing and, and it's flowing it really doesn't matter what I listen to and the the music behind me is kind of like just mood music you know for but it it puts me in the right mindset you know um without giving any spoilers from the book but it, the very last scene um that it's well, I, I won't even say what type of music it is, but I listened to that one particular track that's mentioned at the end of the book over and over and over and over. I just put it on repeat and it helped me so much like to keep my mind in that space of how that particular part of the story was unfolding. So I, music's really important to me. I mean, it, it to me, it's uh, almost like a character and I tried not to get too specific with music, but there were a couple of tracks that I mentioned because um, music is very, very important to me as part of the creative process, for sure. Yeah, I can't, I can't listen to anything, any kind of music when I write, not instrumental or anything, because it uh, takes me out of it. I'm, I'm a musician, so I start, music starts playing in my brain. It does the same thing it does with writing or reading. It starts paying attention to the nuances of the music and that becomes the occupation. So um, hugely important to me to the point that it's so important that I can't stop thinking about it when it's playing. <laughs> so. That, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, I think that's a really personal thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a question. I, it's an interesting question. I always like to hear the answer to because so many people's answers are far less yes no than you expect them to be to that particular question you know um a lot of times it's you know your sort of answer or you know or well yeah i can like beverly i can listen to instrumental but i can't listen to anything with lyrics um i can't even go that far except for nine inch nails i can't understand a word they're saying so i can listen to them <laughs> um, <laughs> um but yeah uh, it's interesting to hear the the processes, environments, backgrounds. You know, do you have to write in a certain place at a certain time of day? Um, you know, some writers are very ritualistic that way. I know, like Joe Lansdale gets up every morning and writes for three hours strictly. You know, sometimes a little more, but never less. And um, and he has a very specific way that he does it. You know, gets up, writes. Um, or edits what he wrote the day before and then writes for the remainder of the time and then just goes on about his day doing other things, you know, but. But everybody's different, aren't they? And I think yeah. that's all part of the creative process that, that there yeah. isn't, that there isn't a best way to do it. It's whatever works for you. Yeah. I think the single most important piece of advice to take away from an author that I've talked to is, um, um, 
I forgot. Well, one thing that, that stuck out to me while I was writing was um, Mary Shelley and other authors, other female authors of that time, like they were referred to as writing in stolen moments, you know, and, and that's kind of how it felt for me because I couldn't, I'm not a full-time writer. I wish I could be like, that's, that's my dream, but you know, it's, I'm not there yet. <laughs> and, and I have to have a regular job to, to pay the bills. So, um, all of my writing kind of occurs in stolen moments. You know, I can't really devote um, specific blocks of time to writing. I wish I could, but I don't know that I would, even if I could, because I'm very much a fly by the seat of my pants kind of person. Like I don't, I can't force myself to be creative. It, it has to happen, you know, and that's why it might take me longer to do things. Um, even if I had, time all to myself but um I wish I could just devote my life to writing that would be wonderful um but stolen moments I think it's it's weird in a way this is much more applicable to women probably because there are so many other responsibilities in our lives that happen and so things that we choose to do tend to take a back burner Mm -hmm. and so they become things that happen if we have free time which may or may not happen and if you're not totally fucking exhausted from everything else that you've been doing exactly yeah exactly and you know sometimes uh my my regular job is actually kind of emotionally draining sometimes so there are times when I come home and I just want to sit in front of the television and veg and you know I I can't write because I'm too tired and just drained but um it it can still happen and that's the thing um it can happen in bits and pieces and I'm a big believer in if you're a writer you can always be writing even if you're not physically writing because thinking, making notes, I'm a huge fan of making notes in my phone because I get ideas all the time and I'll just pick my phone up and jot ideas down or being inspired by something like from a film that you're watching or music that you're listening to. Um, I think if you're always in tune with the world around you, that still counts as writing uh-huh. because you're keeping your mind open to inspiration and that's ultimately the most important thing um finding those stolen moments can be really challenging but they can happen and and a book can happen out of that it really can um what was it i think i figured out 500 words a day gets you a novel that an editor is going to make you cut some length off of by the end of a year so you know yeah a little bit of time (laughs) sure yeah. Which is good as five five hundred words in a day is a marathon for me. So Well, it, it can be a lot for some people, but it's better than zero words. Yeah. Ten yeah. words is better than zero words. Just right. you, that's that's it. It's just getting that first draft down. Like, yeah, you can't edit a blank page. That was something that always always stuck with me as a as a as a form of, of advice that, that was a, that was a good form of advice. 
I think that's some of the best writing advice ever. Yeah. Um, you just have to do it. Exactly. And the other one is takeaway that I was going to say about advice. The best piece of advice I've had is listen to all the advice you get and take away what works. Yes. Uh, but it's not all the same for everybody. Sure, sure. I'm not a fan of like that very popular writing advice, like write every day. Mm-hmm. Like, that's, that's not sustainable. And, you know, advice like that can turn people off of writing completely because some people just cannot manage that. Yeah. yeah. And that's OK. You know, it doesn't mean that you're not a writer or that you can't write anything. So those kinds of absolutes tend to fall flat with me. Like, you know, take notes, be inspired. Those you're still writing. Yeah. Think about it. Think about the story. That's still writing. Exactly. Exactly. You're still working as long as you're I mean, your brain is engaged. And that's 90 percent of what we do is uh, is oddly as flighty as we are. We think, you know, <laughs> true. Uh, Very true. Uh, it's so, as close. Go ahead. Well, What's next for you, Nicole? Well, um, I have been really struggling <laughs> with with writing after this book. It because it kind of took a lot out of me, and this was my first book, and it was um, it was quite an experience. But I actually had a reader who encouraged me to write a sequel and I hadn't planned on doing that. Like I had planned on it being a standalone book. So uh, I almost hate to say that out loud because now I have to do it. Yeah. Oh, it's out there in the world now. But you heard heard it first. Beguiled by night will have a sequel people. (laughs) So I am trying to map that out right now, but one thing I'm looking forward to is um, this this is kind of unconventional and maybe um, a little bit not kosher, but I'm going to do a buddy read of my book with a with a fan of my book. And I've uh, never done anything like that before. And I think it'll be really fun and interesting. And I think it might help uh, open the floodgates a little bit for for the next one. Um, sometimes readers notice things that even you as a writer haven't noticed which sounds a bit odd because you've written it but they'll pick up on certain nuances that maybe you hadn't realized and they just need to say ah but what would happen what would happen if this character had done that and then you go oh I never thought about that and that sends your mind off in another direction it's so true it's so true and I, I feel really privileged to be able to do this with someone because um you know, I, I had beta readers for my book, which was amazing. I mean, that's such an amazing experience. Um, I, I love the beta reader process, but this is almost like a post beta reader process in a way, because I'll be able to discuss things with her and it's it's too late to change them. <laughs> you know, um, it's, it's out a there. great experience for the reader, too, though. It's awesome you're doing that with her. Because it it really is. I basically did that with Beverly against her will when I read the <laughs> Gabriel Davenport series. Oh, but it makes it the experience just, so rich, you know. I, I have to say that 
Beverly's Gabriel Davenport series is absolutely top in my list of favorite vampire novels. Thank you so much. I just love it so much. I mean, I read them all on Kindle and then I went and bought them all because I if if I love a book on Kindle, I have to have a physical copy. It's just it it doesn't seem real to me (laughs) in Kindle. And so having a, a real tangible copy to hold in my hands is everything. Um, but that is a series I will read over and over again for the rest of my life. I mean, there's there's a handful of books like that for me. I I, I am a chronic rereader. <laughs> I do that a lot. But I, I do. it's a small group. I, some people don't like rereading books, but I it, if a book really means something to me, I I kind of have to bring it into my subconscious and multiple readings of it helps me do that. And there are ones that have those, you know, sentimental connections too. It's like, um, I've probably read Salem's Lot 20 times, but it's the first horror novel I ever read that, uh, you know, was beyond um, grade school material, you know, stole it off my dad's bookshelf and um, never looked back after I read it, you know, so it's got a special connection to it. That, that, that's one of my favorite King reads is, is Salem's Lot. I loved it. Yeah. yeah, that that book is what set me into vampires for sure. Yeah, yeah Barlow is my favorite vampire. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, as far as literary vampires go, I mean, I have a deep seated love for Dracula. I always will. Um, that I would say, I guess, I if you count books like Frankenstein and Dracula and those books like I read those pre-Stephen King but I never really thought of myself as a horror reader until Salem's Lot um, because once I read that I was all in if it you know mm-hmm. so um, I think I had a point but I don't know if I covered it or not <laughs> yeah well you know Frankenstein for me like this is a, a confession moment. I have never been able to get through that book. <laughs> I have tried multiple times. I adore Mary Shelley. Adore her. She's a an absolute idol of mine. But I can't get through that book. I just can't <laughs> do it. It's <sighs> a lot of people can't. Same with same with Dracula. I know a lot of people who got DNF Dracula. You know, and it's just each his own. Well, uh, you know, unfortunately, both of those stories have taken on a completely different life through cinema, the ways they were reinterpreted. And, you know, I mean, let's face it, like epistolary novels are not for everyone. Mm -hmm. No, it's it's kind of a tough read. Like one of my favorite books is Dangerous Liaisons, which was written in the 18th century. Mm. It's a French book and it's. Mm-hmm. Um, it's told in epistolary format, and I I love that book, but I I've read it maybe four times, and every time it's a slug for me. But I get through it, you know. But I love the words and I love the story, but at the end I'm always like, oh, so many letters, you know, <laughs> so many letters. <laughs> and that's uh, I struggle with with epistolary reads um, quite a bit. They have to really, really snag me for me to read them. Yeah, it's tough. It's tough. And I'm sure a lot of people come to Dracula, the the novel, 
having seen the films first and it's a completely unexpected experience for them and uh, probably the same with Frankenstein it's uh, not what they expected at all you know yeah for one thing they always expect the monster to be Frankenstein yes <laughs> <laughs> it's like no that's not that's not Frankenstein that's just the poor innocent monster <laughs> yes um but yeah, they do that a lot with monsters, and I'm always disappointed by that. I like movie monsters that were created for the movies they were made, or rather, so much classical monsters in most film don't. I they don't do it for me because they don't stay true, and I think it's something you know. Even Hellraiser, Barker went way off this way off his own um, way off his own script as far as uh, describing Pinhead and. Um, their creation of Pinhead compared to what he described in um, the Hellbound Heart, you know, and I'm not purist enough to get pissed by that, but I am purist enough to be bothered by it, you know. Yeah, well, that's always a tough situation, isn't it? When you when you love a book and you see a film or television adaptation of it, I mean, it's it's really tough for people who are hardcore readers and especially people who loved the book first to see that translation to screen because it can be so disappointing. I mean, it's, I, I kind of feel for people that make book to, to screen adaptations because you know, they get so much grief from oh, readers. Yeah. <laughs> We're a tough bunch. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we have high expectations. Yes, yes. And especially, yeah, like you say, the hardcore readers, the people who would pick up a book before they'd pick up a movie, um, you know, are a huge portion of them are always going to have really, really big problems with most ad- adaptations that they read or watch, rather. Um, some things just don't translate, though, do they, no, from, some, no. from page to screen? Yeah, but some translates perfectly. Yeah, I had difficulty with Game of Thrones because I was reading it and I was reading the series. You know, I've got all the books on the shelf and I was waiting for that final one. And then all I ever heard was what was happening on, on the sky. I didn't watch it. And then he hadn't written that last one. So I had to watch the end on Sky and catch up with it that way. And I gave away the books. I've not. So if he ever writes the last book in the series, I'm not going to get it. (laughs) He says the last book in the series is going to be totally different than what they did in the series, in the TV series. But But by um, the time that comes out, you'll have forgotten how the books end. All I remember, the last one, Jon Snow had been stabbed in the stomach or something, and I was waiting to see whether he survived. And then it was all on telly. But, you know, it it is kind of a dangerous thing to to take something that already has a huge fandom as a book, Mm -hmm. as a book series, and then translate it to screen. And, I mean, admittedly, I I did not watch Games of Thrones or Games of... Game of Thrones. Sorry, I've never seen the series, but I did see all of the fallout that happened after the last episode and how upset people were. And I could relate to that. I mean, I understand that because um, it's it's disappointing. I mean, there are things like Beverly said that 
just will not translate to to screen. You know, they have to be modified, and those things are acceptable. But one thing I've never understood is people that uh, take an existing story that people love and turn it to screen and modify the storyline so much. Mm-hmm. Because in that case, I feel like, well, maybe you should have just written your own original script instead of doing that to an existing storyline. But, you know, that that kind of hurts people. I mean, I, it's, it's, sometimes it seems like there's a huge disconnect between showrunners and readers because they don't understand how deeply people feel about these books you know I I think it's always a contentious subject though isn't it something like that I mean people get very very het up about it and there's no there's no one way that is the right way because people that make movies and make series for a living will say well you know it is a book yes but we're making it something and it's a completely different animal because it's this visual entertainment and then of course that upsets the readers and you're never going to please everybody no it's it's not a winning situation <laughs> somebody's going to lose there I, th- I think there are different genres that adapt better than others too um and it's not i don't mean it in a judgy way i, I think all genres are valid but i think um like um uh romance tends to translate over better um mm-hmm. Young people's literature tends to translate over better, like Perks of Being a Wallflower comes to mind. Sure. Um, the book book and movie were both, they were different, but they were both very stellar. They translated really well. But yeah, horror is, that's a hard one to translate, even when they do a good job with it, you know. Um, like The Thing was very, 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 um, not 100%, but it was pretty loyal to the original work. Um but anyway, um, yeah, that was just that point that some genres seem to go better from and be more acceptable to their readers as well when they translate from print to film, you know. Maybe because horror is so much more in the imagination of the reader. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that's where it gets really complicated because you have all these people with different interpretations and different ideas in their minds of of how a person looks or how a monster looks or I mean who knows like Bram Stoker might have been extremely upset at the portrayal of Dracula by Bela Lugosi you know and he ended up kind of creating this whole um pop culture definition of a vampire I mean if you think vampire you kind of automatically picture the cloak and the hair and, and all that you know, and the medallion, like that's, it's ingrained in our pop, our pop culture mentality. He might've hated that. I mean, mm-hmm. Anne Rice is famous for hating Tom Cruise as Lestat, mm-hmm. but everybody seems to love Tom Cruise as Lestat. So it gets so weird. Um, yeah. I'm not everybody. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Tom Cruise is too short to be Lestat. <laughs> That's actually the only role I think I actually liked Tom Cruise. In. Yeah. <laughs> I was I was surprised he did a. I mean I I felt like he did a good job in it, but you know. He did he did do a good job. He just wasn't my picture, and you know how that goes. Get an oh, idea. Yeah, definitely. But I mean, and then you know, in Queen of the Damned, if you've seen that, 
like Lestat has dark hair. And I mean, that mm. to me is unacceptable because in the book, yes. it, it says over and over and over again that he's fair and has blonde yeah. hair. And it's yeah. like, really? Could you not have just done that one thing? Like, could you not have put a decent wig on Stuart Townsend, you know? <laughs> yes. I mean, could you just not have made him blonde? Like, could that have killed anybody? Yeah, it's like, well, you you had the right idea making him pretty, but you didn't give him the right color hair. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it just seems to me like if an author goes to so much trouble to emphasize, like, mm. a character's physical appearance, like, you could at least honor that, you know. But Well, well that reminds me of Psycho. And I read that for the first time recently. And Norman Bates, in the, the, the way he's described is completely different to how he appears on, you know, in the film, in the book, I think he was sort of chubby and balding and sweaty and all sorts. I can't remember the exact, but I know he was quite different to how he was portrayed. Yeah. And and that would have made you feel differently about him in the film if he was portrayed that way, because like Anthony Perkins was actually kind of like kind of handsome, you know, and, not repellent in any sort of way, but just a little off somehow. I mean, I wonder how much that would have changed the the screen story. Um, Maybe that was a product of the time, though, where, you know, leading actors had to be handsome and charismatic, even if the roles they portrayed weren't like that. That's true. I mean, contextually, from that period of time, maybe that was just not palatable to public um you know maybe it was too much for them i mean you know i it's funny because i know some people younger people specifically complain about the original dracula with bela lugosi and i actually mentioned this in the book that he doesn't have fangs you know because like we vampires are supposed to have fangs obviously i mean like that's what we expect now and if you look at the original vampire, he didn't. No fangs. And the reason for that was because basically of censorship. Mm. You know, they could not show him like actually putting his mouth on this woman or, you know, coming towards her with such violence. Because in 1931, that would have been extreme violence, mm. you know. So it's interesting. <laughs> Pardon me, how our perceptions of acceptable violence change over the times. And maybe in the early 60s when Psycho came out, like that would have been too scary for people to see him as the way you described him in the book. Plus he was uh, more, I think they were more about appealing to to viewers through um, eye candy than, I mean, nowadays you're more likely to get you know, a really disgusting character actually seeming really disgusting on the screen. Um, back then, you had, especially Hitchcock, was casting people like Janet Lee and Jimmy Stewart and, you know, um, all the beautiful people. So, no okay. surprise this casting choice went towards Perkins, who was creepy, but yeah, not not creepy like the fat, sweaty guy. In, <laughs> in, I can't remember the description exactly, but I know it was enough but it was. Yeah. Well, and the interesting result was it still kind of destroyed his film career, that role. <laughs> like, he, 
I mean, he was he was handsome enough to go on and and play in, you know, normal or straight roles after that film, but he wasn't hired because no, wanted for that. Yeah. Cuz he was kind of tainted by that film. But, but, but yeah, he's still remembered for it even so many years down the line. So Oh yeah. I mean, talk about the role of a lifetime. Yeah, yeah no, I didn't. There was something interesting about that movie that has no place in this conversation, but it was um, <laughs> the person who actually did the screaming in the shower was not the actress. It was actually somebody else who did the scream. Um, um, that iconic shower scream that everyone calls one of the best screams in horror film. Um, yeah, it was a different actress who voiced over the scream. So, wow. like I said, like I said, it has no place in this conversation. Well, um, screaming is a talent in and of itself, isn't it? Uh, I mean, <laughs> like my husband and I are, we watch tons of horror films, old and new. And we're frequently going like, that was a really great scream. Like, uh-huh. really, like top notch, like excellent. Oh, <laughs> um, yeah. like a scream scale. <laughs> scream, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm exceptionally impressed by that because I tried screaming like like a woman one time just jokingly and I tore my throat up really bad. I how <laughs> people do that. You know, it's like I would die silently before I'd do that again. <laughs> uh, uh, but uh I guess we're we're sitting at eleven or 10:30 in the UK now, so I'm gonna go ahead and start working on wrapping up so these ladies can uh, finish their evenings out and let you get back to your day, Nicole. Well, this was a pleasure. I actually wish we could do this again sometime because I love talking with you all. Oh, uh, thank you so thank you so much for your time, Nicole. It's been great to actually speak to you face to face. I know, so good. It, it has been, and we will do this again. We'll maybe bring you on as a guest host sometime soon too oh i'd love that yeah yeah it's fun um so yeah that's it for me um if you have anything else you want us to make sure we cover before we go now is the time well i guess all i'll say is uh if you want to know more about my book you can visit thevampire.org and it has links for Direct from publisher purchase and all the corporate overlords as well. So <laughs> but you can um, sign copies and swag if you order directly from the publisher. So that's always the best way to go. Definitely. It's always for the publisher and the reader and the author, the best way to go. But, you know, so, yeah, I'm not trying to guilt you out for using your filthy, rotten corporate conglomerates. But, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you know, <laughs> got it. We got to go down all the avenues these days, don't we? Yes. Unfortunately. Yes. <laughs> if you want, if you want to ever sell anything, you do. Um, but you yeah, do. on that note, ladies, um, is it is it uh, socially correct anymore to say ladies to people? <laughs> I call Uh-oh. a group of women ladies. Fine by me. Yeah. <laughs> problem with it. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. I really Thank appreciate you for it. Being uh, uh, this has been a great show thank you all three and I will talk to you all soon uh, good night good night, good night.